Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. I want to tell you a little bit about today's show. First, we'll talk about three stories in the news that caught my eye recently. A bizarre connection between big booty and brain inflammation. New advice for parents about the risks of digital devices in young children and what to do instead. And a possible breakthrough in understanding and preventing Huntington's disease. So first of all, Huntington's disease... Uh, you may remember this from uh, Woody Guthrie, who had this disease. It is an autosomal dominant, which means that if you get one copy of this, you're in trouble. You'll eventually get the disease. And it's a really, really terrible neurodegenerative disease because it progressively affects movement, cognition, and causes psychiatric symptoms. It typically hits people in their 40s or 50s after they've passed it on, which is one of the reasons that it has remained in the uh, the genome of humanity. The involuntary, the abnormalities of movement, they're sort of spastic movements, uh, jerky movements, very Tourette's-like, lots of tremor and muscle spasm. You also get amnesia, and uh, delusion, dementia-type symptoms, uh, difficulty understanding. You, you get compulsive behavior, fidgeting, irritability, and hallucinations, paranoia, and, and mood swings. So it is just about everything going, as my friend uh, would say, cattywampus and not working. It's a horrible disease, and we have we can identify the gene for it, but we haven't understood until now exactly what was going on with Huntington's disease. So a research team led by the University of California, Irvine, my old alma mater for residency, has linked the mutation that causes Huntington's disease to developmental deficits in a cell in the brain called the oligodendrocyte. Uh, these are cells that undergo a change in metabolism, and this change in metabolism is reversible. More about that in a moment. Oligodendrocytes are the cells that generate the insulating coating around neurons called myelin. Myelin, by the way, is what is attacked in the far more common disease, multiple sclerosis, which is an autoimmune disease where your immune system attacks the myelin. The myelin is the insulator for the wiring of the brain. Your white matter is coated in myelin. That allows it to think quickly and travel fast. So the impulses from your brain can reach other parts of your brain and also can reach your limbs. Um, when I think about the structure of the brain, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about looking behind one of those server farms, you know, going behind the racks of machines and seeing all the cables and all the wires connecting. Well, the brain has wires and cabling just like that. And imagine what would happen if you nicked the, those wires. It would interfere with the electrical transmission. Cross a few wires and things get really confused in your server farm. Well, in your brain, that's 
pretty much what's happening with Huntington's disease. But we now have technology that allows us to really identify uh, what's going on. These are advanced modeling methods. We've talked about organoids before, and effectively that's what they're using here. And they had mouse and human organoids from brain tissue of Huntington's disease, either humans or mice with a Huntington's disease mouse model. And what in, in looking at those and dissecting their development, what the researchers found was that the maturation state of the oligodendrocytes was a case of arrested development. Their precursors and these cells did not finish developing properly. Because they didn't develop properly, they didn't produce the enough myelin, and they didn't keep producing it to keep the brain healthy. And so by the time humans reach their 40s, their brains are starting to degenerate in the ways I've just described. But this is so great. They found that very high doses of thiamine and biotin, that's thiamine is, of course, vitamin B1, and biotin doesn't have a number, but it's a B vitamin. And you use these two vitamins uh, in your B complex, and people sometimes take very high doses of biotin, like uh, five or 10 milligrams, although you, your, your requirement is in the microgram range, but it helps at that nutraceutical do- dose for hair growth and nail growth. So uh, I think we had a, an email about that in the not too distant past, actually, that we talked about it. Uh, there's no known uh, damage to taking that much, 10 milligrams, but High doses of these were put in the cell culture with these organoids, and they rescued the gene expression and created that final step of maturation and got them developing fully normally. So this is in organoid levels. So the next step, says the study's co-author Ryan Lim, is to track the effects of thiamine and biotin treatment on Huntington's disease mice so we can further clarify these processes and assure the efficacy of this as a therapeutic approach in mammals. And from there, well, this is very safe therapy. These are vitamins. Megavitamin therapy uh, has been tried in the brain before, usually with with, uh, vitamin B12. This is really exciting to me because this disease is dreadful and we have no treatment for it. And I mean, if I don't know if I would want to know if I have it, because it's just that sword of Damocles hanging over your head. And, you know, who wants to go through their life with that? Very, very big good news. Now, I promised you booty, and here it comes. Subcutaneous fat emerges as a protector of Females' brains. Now, you may have noticed uh, females, uh, female mammals of the two-legged variety have a propensity to deposit more fat in their hips, buttocks, and in back of their arms than male mammals. This is called subcutaneous fat. And in contradistinction, male mammals of basically any age, have a greater propensity to deposit fat around 
their abdomen and around the major organs of their abdomen. This is called visceral adiposity. And we've known for a long time, at least two decades, that uh, although I didn't learn this in medical school, it's known to be far more inflammatory to have high levels of visceral adipose tissue, or VAT. Before uh, females reach menopause, men are uh, at males in general across species are at much higher risk for inflammation-related problems from heart attack and stroke. And when people think about the protection in women, their first thought is that it's from estrogen. But it turns out that's overly simplistic, like most things in biology. Uh, there's Every sex difference does involve hormone differences and hormone exposures, but it may not be the estrogen levels so much as the way that estrogen directs the fat deposition into those female secondary sexual characteristics. So we need to really understand, the research has said, that exactly what the mechanism is. So the findings that they have are potentially heretical and revolutionary. And they did experiments to try to nail down, first of all, what happens first, the hormone perturbation of menopause leading to the sort of equal inflammation of postmenopausal women and men, the inflammation itself, or uh, brain changes of inflammation. And so they first looked at, uh, in mice, at males and females, and they looked at uh, where was the fat in these animals, its location, was it visceral adipose tissue or was it peripheral, peripheral subcutaneous fat, and they looked at brain inflammation in male and female mice, much easier to do in mice, uh, and they put them on high-fat diets, and what they found was that when they put these mice on a high-fat diet, the female mice tended to have more subcutaneous fat in the in the you know lower half of the body, the hindquarters, and less visceral fat. And they found there was a strong correlation between uh, fat distribution and brain inflammation. In fact, in the females on the high-fat diet who still were making estrogen, they found no indication of brain inflammation or insulin resistance at all until the female mice reached menopause. At about 48 weeks of mouse life, the menstruation stops and the fat, the estrogen goes away and the fat positioning redistributes to something more like males. Uh, they then looked at the impacts of this high-fat diet, uh, which is known to increase inflammation in mice of both sexes following liposuction to remove subcutaneous fat. They did nothing directly interfere with the, the estrogen levels. They didn't remove the ovaries, and these were premenopausal mice. And the subcutaneous fat loss increased brain inflammation in the females, but it didn't move the dial on their estrogen levels or their other sex hormones. So when they looked in the brain, they had all of the classic markers of inflammation like IL-1 beta and tumor necrosis, uh, TNF, uh, which is tumor necrosis factor. And they basically made these mice into male or male mice risk factors, these females, just by taking out their butt fat. The booty was protective. So what's your first take home? 
issue here? Well, the first one is that BMI doesn't tell you a damn thing about inflammation. And what is a useful test and what in functional medicine I've been trained to do, although honestly, I hesitate to do it. I tend to eyeball my patients because uh, I don't. I want to stay on their good side. And if I ask someone to measure around their waist and then measure around their butt, that, believe it or not, even when you're doing a physical, feels very weird to my patients. So I hesitate to ask, but I'm happy to do your butt-to-gut ratio, and I'll tell you how to do it right now. You take your tape measure, and you find your natural waistline, which is usually somewhere around the belly button, but it's the narrowest part, or it's halfway between, you, if you don't have the narrowest part there, it's halfway between the, uh, the hip and the lowest rib. So go out to the side, put fingers on your hip bone, and put fingers on your lowest rib, and go in the center with your you know, it, third finger on the hip, thumb on the rib, and the middle finger falls naturally into your waist. That's when, that one you measure. Then you go down to where that bone is on the outside of your hip. That's usually the widest part of most people's hips. Go ahead and measure around there. Now, if you're a male, you want the butt-to-gut ratio, which is to say your hip-to-waist ratio to be one or less. And if you're a woman, your uh, waist should be no more than 0.8, of your hip measurement for you to be at low risk. That's the normal range for visceral adipose tissue in the two sexes. Above that, you start to get into the pro-inflammatory range. This study looks specifically at the hippocampus and the hypothalamus uh, of the brain. Now, these are the areas that we associate with dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Uh, The hippocampus is the center of learning and memory. And the hypothalamus, of course, controls metabolism. And when you have inflammation from obesity, you actually get inflammation in the hypothalamus that interferes with your satiety, which leads to more obesity. It's as if the fat cells are reprogramming your brain, not what you want. Uh, We don't know about other regions of the brain, and I'm sure they're going to study that. They're going to look at what whether there's a chromosomal factor, because you do... uh, we, we do need to see exactly what's triggering this, but don't get liposuction and then eat a high-fat diet, I guess, is the practical take-home for this. And also, maybe, you know, don't feel so bad, ladies, if you've got, um, if you're a pear shape and you've got a little bit extra down there uh, below the waist, because it's probably protecting you from inflammation. Okay. I said I I always try to include some practical advice early on. So besides feeling good about your self-esteem, we've got some some practical advice for parents. Now, you've heard about the dangers of screens and digital devices for children. You've been told, turn off the device, no screens before eight-year-old. You've You've heard all of this totally impractical advice. So how about some practical advice? First of all, why do you need to worry about this. It's a scene many parents have experienced. They're trying to cook dinner. They're trying to take a phone call. They're on a Zoom. Uh, their child has a meltdown. And, you know, sometimes handing your four-year-old a digital device seems to offer the quick fix. But this calming strategy could be linked to 
worse behavior challenges down the road. In fact, you may be creating your own kind of little micro hell by doing this. Frequent use of devices like smartphones and tablets to calm upset children between the ages of three to five was associated with increased emotional dysregulation in these kids when they went to school. This was a Michigan uh, medicine study, University of Michigan. It was in JAMA Pediatrics, and the risk was especially great for boys. See, particularly in childhood, part of development is figuring out how to self-regulate. And these devices actually interfere I mean, I can remember being dropped into this primitive device called a playpen, which was basically a cage in which I could not hurt myself and my mother could go to the bathroom or whatever she needed to do, even though there was no one else in the house. And those that is not child abuse, okay? That's a practical solution. But diverting the kid, we're going to talk about some strategies for that. But the key point here is we have to be careful that we don't take away our children's opportunities to develop uh, alternative methods to self-regulate. The study looked at 422 parents and 422 children aged 3 to 5, And between August 2018 and January 2020, so it's before COVID-19 starts, the researchers analyzed the parents and the caregiver responses to how often they use devices as a calming tool. And they looked at symptoms of emotional reactivity or dysregulation over a six-month period. And this was objectively identified by clinical observers. And what's increased dysregulation? Well, Rapid shifts between sadness and excitement, sudden changes in mood, uh, heightened impulsivity. Sound familiar? Anybody who's raised a three-year-old knows what I'm talking about. And when you, you the association between using devices to calm children and adverse emotional consequences was particularly high as among young boys, but also among children who already have an issue with hyperactivity impulsiveness, or just a strong temperament that makes them more likely to react intensely to feelings like anger, frustration, or sadness. And using devices as a way to appease agitated children might be especially problematic for kids who already struggle with emotional coping because they need as many opportunities to figure this out as they can get before they hit school. And what they found was when children... uh, have a problem between three and five that they don't solve, they're much more likely to uh, exhibit tantrums and defiance. And it that kind of loops, it makes it even more tempting for the patients to use the devices because the, the caregivers may experience immediate relief from using these devices uh, because they quickly and effectively reduce children's negative and challenging behaviors. This is rewarding. Do you hear reward loop? and digital device, right? It's rewarding to get a thumbs up. It's rewarding to get a kid to shut up. And both of these things reinforce the value and the utility of this device. The children uh, actually can become motivated 
to yell and scream in order to get access to the device. So you end up training in and rewarding the behavior that you were trying to uh, appease. It's it's a bad loop, and it strengthens over time as children's media demands strengthen. Uh, and the more often the devices are used, less practice children and their parents get to use other coping strategies. So what other coping strategies should parents be thinking about? Well, for one thing, young kids have their own unique profiles of what type of sensory input calms them down. It could be swinging, uh, it could be hugging, pressure, jumping on a trampoline. Other cool ideas I found here were squishing putty in their hands, uh, looking at a book or a sparkle jar. Uh, If you see the kid getting antsy, channel that energy into body movement or sensory approaches. Distract, redirect, right? Name the emotion and what to do about it. When parents label what they think their kid is feeling, they help both the kid connect language to feeling states, and they can show the child that they understood. And if the parents stay calm, they they demonstrate to the kids that, that emotions are manageable and mentionable. A great idea that they offer here is to use color zones. Children have a hard time about thinking about emotions and abstract concepts. They don't have literally the hardware to do that, but they do get colors. So using color zones, codes basically, blue for bored, green for calm, yellow for anxious and agitated, red for explosive, are easier for kids to get. And you can make a visual guide on the fridge, help young children paint a mental picture of how their brain and their body is is feeling. And you can use these color zones in challenging moments. Are you feeling wiggly and in the yellow zone? What can you do to get back to green? Now, how can, let's calm you down. No, let's get you back to green. And green is calm. Oh, you're being very green right now. I see that you're quite green. Uh, what do you, you know, what shall we do now? Kids can really get negative when they're upset, and it's normal to just want it to step back, but you can do replacement pro- behavior. So, for example, you might teach a sensory stra- strategy. You know, hitting hurts me, but you can hit this pillow instead. Hit it really hard. Uh, Clear communication. You know, if you want my attention, just tap my arm and say, excuse me, mom. And then when they do, stop what you're doing and reward the behavior. Reward what you want to see. Don't reward what you don't want to see. And if you must use an electronic device, make it very clear when and where it's going to be used. We're in the store and you're having a meltdown and use apps or video services that have a clear stopping point and that will end. Don't just put things on autoplay and don't let the kid keep scrolling. That is just reinforcing the behavior. And when the kids calm down, you have the opportunity to teach them emotional coping skills. Uh, you can t- ask them to tell them how their favorite stuffed animal might be feeling right now and how Tiger handles their big emotions. How does What does Tiger do when Tiger is red? And this type of discussion uses the kids' language. It resonates with them, and it allows them to grasp this concept, this feeling, and give it a name without an, making it abstract to them. 
the key is for the caregiver to model staying calm and not overreacting. There's nothing like a good time out, but a time out with a device is not a time out at all. And it's just a distractor. The kids don't build the skills to recognize and understand and control their emotions before they go to school, and they're likely to end up having their emotions controlled with drugs when they get there because of the level of disruption or end up in uh, being you know, taken out of the setting where they could learn the best. So uh, let's go to an email. This from Kathy in Monterey. Uh, Intermittent fasting. Hi, Dr. Don. I recently read a report of a study that basically said type 2 diabetes can be reversed by intermittent fasting, plus providing other health benefits. What type of intermittent fasting would you recommend for someone who wishes to improve health in general and doesn't have diabetes? And then she references a study that was recently published in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. Uh, and unfortunately, it was behind a paywall, and I didn't have chance to log in to my enterprise uh, account and pull the exact method. But given that it's Kathy's question is a little bit off topic of the article, I'll just give you uh, a short precis of the article. And essentially, intermittent fasting, uh, according to the study, can even reverse type 2 diabetes. And so, uh, first of all, let's define uh, intermittent fasting. It's uh, eating during only a specific window of time each day. And therefore, for the rest of the day, you're not consuming any calories. During that time, your body is going to uh, burn fat differently. It's going to help lower your risk of diabetes and heart disease. And in in this case, uh, perhaps more than lower your risk, but actually reverse the disease. Uh, now, we've always known that diabetes, type 2 diabetes, is not a permanent lifelong disease. It's a symptom of uh, behavior. It's basically an emergent phenomenon that comes out of an excess carbohydrate in the diet and lack of burning that carbohydrate with activity. And intermittent fasting generates essentially more burning of carbohydrate and going in particularly going into fat stores and burning fat because when you are eating all the time your insulin levels never drop low enough for your body to switch over to burning fat which is in in many ways the last resort uh, that's the kind of reserve tank and you don't go into the reserve tank unless you have to and in this case uh Intermittent fasting forces the body to go into the reserve tank and take down some of those reserves, and that creates a chain reaction of effects that lead to improved uh, insulin resistance because you're not throwing insulin at the receptors 24-7. So this was a study using a three-month intermittent fasting intervention among 36 people with diabetes. And they, they were, this was probably a very strict program based on the results that they are reporting. It came out of, uh, it came out, all, all the studies were done uh, in China. And uh, there, it, there was, however, one researcher at the University of Irvine, uh, California. And I'm not quite sure uh, 
it's a lot of people doing the research. I suspect that most of the patients were in China. And it is debatable to me, but perhaps a reasonable hypothesis, that uh, Chinese people may be more compliant when they know that Big Brother is watching. Uh, more compliant, less defiant might be a good description of what's what are we now at four, four or five generations of the People's Republic? Anyway, I digress. Fifty-five uh, percent of the people experienced diabetes remission and were able to discontinue their diabetes medication. And I've actually seen this happen with with dietary change and eliminating virtually all simple carbohydrates, all uh, virtually all starch and all sugar. It's very hard to get people to do that, particularly if they're already type 2 diabetes because they develop that as largely as a result of lifestyle, and lifestyle is extraordinarily difficult to change. But one of the changes that you might be looking at making for your health in a lot of areas, including there's data on reduction of dementia, Kathy, there's data on, of course, cardiovascular disease. And so what type of intermittent fasting would I recommend? And the, there's a couple things I want to say about that. First one is consistency. I do not believe that the cheat day makes sense. If you are doing intermittent fasting, you really want to pretty much stay with eating all of your meals in that same time frame. If your lifestyle and job permits, you should try and have the time that you eat be early in the day. So that means eating within, say, an hour of getting up and then finishing up your last meal, ideally eight hours later, but for someone who's, because that's what they will do in a diabetes study like this one, but a uh, a period of 10 hours is probably still beneficial because that gives you 14 hours when you're just basically on fluids, water, and non-caloric fluids. Uh, We don't have good data whether or not using, say, artificial sweeteners will defeat that. We do know that stevia won't defeat it uh, in some respects, that is to say the insulin resistance uh, aspect And so I do sweeten my tea with sugar. I try to myself hit a 10-hour time frame, eight hours, come as close to that as I can, but I'm not always able to do that full eight hours. So I make sure that if I do eat outside of that, what I eat is very, very low glycemic. So I don't kick my insulin levels up. So I continue to burn fat and also burn waste products, because that's really what your body is doing during intermittent fasting. It's it's scavenging around the fridge, looking for edible stuff, broken down proteins, cellular debris, stuff It would that's not all that appetizing. You know, if you've got a fresh delivery of your favorite fast food, you're going to eat that, and you're not going to dredge around in the fridge and microwave something. On the other hand, if you're hungry, and that's the only thing available, yeah, you'll eat the leftovers. So you force your body to metabolize the leftovers, and that cleans house for you. And it is anti, and it's less inflammation, and that's good for you too. Because ultimately, inflammation is the root of all evil physiologically. 
I already mentioned the uh, 12 earlier in the day. And so a good window for that 10 hours would be 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. And that's uh, that's an an effective one. Uh, If you can make that work in your lifestyle, forget the midnight snacks, just do fluids at night, it will probably be long-term beneficial from the standpoint of your health. So I mentioned uh, digital devices and regulation. This is kind of a uh, expose or muckraker written by uh, Peter Elkind. It appeared in ProPublica. And I'm going to start in the middle and just talk about research on uh, cellular devices and their biological effects. We'll, get, we'll do a little bit of history around how the biological, how the numbers that are currently enforced by the FDA and the FCC for safety are a little outdated. And then we'll talk about some of what's happening behind the curtain, so to speak, in preventing uh, adequate regulation of this technology. So there's a researcher, an emeritus professor of bioengineering at the University of Washington named uh, Henry Lay, L-A-I, and he's compiled a a database of uh, 1,123 peer-reviewed studies published since 1990 investigating biological effects from wireless radiation exposure. Uh, 77 of these have found statistically significant effects Uh, On the other hand, Lay also did a review of industry-sponsored studies on this, and very strange. The industry-sponsored studies, uh, 72% of them reported no biological effects whatsoever. But the research has studied the radiation impacts on test animals, rats and mice, but guinea pigs, rabbits, cows, they're in all of them. Others have looked at epidemiological patterns, looking for health effects on human groups, the high, uh, heavy long-term cell users, people living near cellular towers, and they've found impacts on fertility, fetal development, DNA, memory functions, the nervous system, and an associate in a, a variety of cancers. Several investigators reported an increased risk of brain tumors called gliomas. As these have come out over the years, we've... Uh, I've, I've mentioned them. I've talked about them. I stopped. I stopped. Started using my speaker or a headset, uh, and I basically started putting, keeping my phone at arm's length whenever possible, or putting it on airplane mode if I had, if I did, you know, tuck it into my waistband or my bra for a few minutes to to be hands free. While I'm also, you know, off Wi-Fi and on airplane mode when I have that close to my body. You've heard me recommend not to give uh, phone, your phones with them on to a child if they still have their fontanelle open and not to use it around them. Uh, just keeping the headset or speaker, you know, keeping the phone away from your body, even just at arm's length, protects you because of something called the inverse square law. The power of the effect file, uh, falls off with the square of the distance. So, you know, my arm is 24 inches long. If I'm holding my phone at arm's length, uh, it, the radiation hit that I'm, that I'm taking is a quarter 
of what it is if I'm holding it up to my ear. And there are even studies uh, that are peer-reviewed and published showing a, a rise in behavioral disorders among children whose mothers were heavy cell phone users while pregnant. And so they followed up. They did uh, they took mice and exposed them while pregnant and exposed them to uh, cell phone radiation, and they got baby mice with increased hyperactivity. And fetal brain development is a very vulnerable time. The skull is not a barrier. Now, in us, the skull's bone, it's a pretty good insulator from brainwaves and, and from, sorry, a microwave radiation and the but not when you're talking about children who still have a big cartilage plate and whose skulls, even after that cartilage plate closes, are still pretty thin. But here's the thing. Both the FCC and the FDA on their official websites say, well, there's no special health risk to children, and they don't counsel people to limit their exposure. Instead, they list safety steps while insisting they're really not necessary. So on the FCC's wireless devices concerns page, it noticed that some parties recommend safety measures, even though no scientific currently establishes a definite link between wireless device use and cancer. And then it states in bold, the FCC does not endorse the need for this practice. And I want to say that this is industry pressure, pure and simple, uh, and it's subtle. You know, it's the hand in the velvet glove. Efforts in the U.S. to promote awareness of wireless radiations have, have sparked fierce resistance. Back in 2014, the CDC added this modest language. Along with many organizations worldwide, we recommend caution in cell phone use. This was three years after the World Health Organization put on its website, we think this is a potential carcinogen. Now, a few days after that went up on the website, an influential, unnamed, influential industry consultant emailed the CDC uh, and complained that changes are truly needed in the CDC's language. Well, they got their changes. The agency quickly softened its warning, and now it says, some organizations recommend caution in cell phone use. And the, the industry's trade group, which is called CTIA, prevents local consumer disclosure measures. It beats back city ordinances trying to restrict where cell phones are uh, located. In 2015, uh, the city council post was going to require retailers to post a safety uh, notice warning customers that carrying a cell phone tucked in a pocket or bra might expose them to uh, excessive radiation. By the way, this was based on the actual FCC guidelines that are buried in small print information that's included with the new phones. I don't know if you've ever read those. It says phones should not be kept in direct contact with the head or the body. And it's like, <laughs> it's like, yes, cigarettes should not be you should not light a cigarette, place it in your mouth, and inhale, but it's fine to buy a pack. Uh, yeah. Now, a whole bunch of countries have adopted protective measures or put uh, pr precautions in place. France requires new phones to be sold with headsets and written guidance on limiting radiation exposures, and it bans 
uh, ads aimed at anyone younger than 14 or phones marketed to small children. You can't do that in France. And both Greece and Switzerland, the governments wander around and monitor the radio frequency radiation levels throughout the country, especially around uh, cell phone towers. And many countries, I won't list them, they're too numerous, urge citizens to limit their own exposures. And there, there's just plenty of risk to holding up the phones. Now, the original safety stuff, the FCC uh, rules, uh, go all the way back to, I'm sorry, give me a second here, uh, 26 years ago. And that was when one in six Americans owned cell phones. We were in 3G. There were not very good cell towers. Today, it's 97% of adults. And most people use the device on an average of five hours a day. And more than half of children under 12 have a smartphone. And back then, the health hazard we knew about was wireless radiation can cause thermal damage, overheating the skin in a way that microwaves heat food. And most experts agree that's really not a risk under most circumstances, but it doesn't consider the biological impacts. And even wireless exposure at levels well beyond these limits can have uh, an effect on tissue. There's a, a famous study which, in which they took, I mean, the, okay, you can look at sperm in a Petri dish and score the sperm based on motility and mobility. How fast are they swimming? How many of them aren't swimming and are just kind of spasming around in a circle? So you can take sperm, put them in a Petri dish from the same specimen coming out of the same guy, and one of the one of these petri dishes is sitting on a cell phone that's turned on and it's in airplane mode and the other one is sitting on a cell phone that is not in airplane mode and you can come back in half an hour and look at those sperm under a microscope and you will reliably be able to tell which cell phone was on because you will see lower sperm motility and that to me is a very persuasive biological demonstration that there is at the resting levels of a phone, not a phone that's not even being used to talk on, that there is a, a, a biological effect that needs to be addressed. Now, we're, we're just relentlessly going forward with this 5G thing, and we're looking at something like close to a million new base stations putting small transmitters everywhere. We're going to be bathing in uh, EMF here and bathing in uh, this, this stuff that we know has a biological effect. And the exposure limits were established in 1996 when Motorola's flip phone, remember the communicator flip phone, StarTac? Yeah, that was the state of the art in 1996. We've got to protect ourselves. We cannot expect 
government to protect us. They're clearly in the pocket of industry here. And we've got to protect the children. We've got to make sure that we don't engage in a colossal experiment on young developing brains. I think I'm I, I think when I think back about the number of kids coming in needing ADD drugs and how rapidly that mounted in the uh, to, in the twenty teens and, and became so universal that you know every class had three kids on ADD meds, if not more, and that was such a paradigm shift. And now I'm wondering if a lot of that had to do with the fact that. As the parents had phones, they discovered, hey, this is the best thing. This is even better than a pacifier. And it is. And it's tempting to use it all the time. And we get reinforced and addicted to our devices. And we have to stop addicting our children because their brains, we're building them addicted. We're building a brain that is already pre-addicted. And that's a very, very bad idea. So, long COVID among the unvaccinated. A new study of tens of thousands of people in Scotland has found that nearly half of COVID patients still haven't fully recovered. They looked at 33, uh, even after many months, they looked at 33,000 and change uh, people with laboratory-confirmed COVID infections and 62,000 never-infected individuals. And they had six, 12, and 18-month follow-up questionnaires and hospitalization records. And of the COVID patients, one out of 20 reported not recovering at all over uh, 18 months. And four out of 10 were not fully recovered. That's a substantial percentage, 40%. And they had all sorts of symptoms that you've heard of palpitations, breathlessness, confusion, difficulty concentrating at roughly three times that of the uninfected people and higher risks of a whole lot of other conditions. The good news here, and it is good news, is that vaccinated patients were far less likely than unvaccinated when they got COVID to exhibit long COVID symptoms. And those with asymptomatic infections also reported fewer long-term symptoms. So being vaccinated reduces your risk of long COVID. And that's pretty, that's pretty darn cool. They mentioned, I mentioned confusion. Actually, brain fog might be one of the most persistent and disabling uh, things in, uh, amongst COVID's many symptoms. Uh, brain fog is by far one of, uh, is something that maybe 30% of patients three months after their initial infection report. And if you're a long hauler who has other symptoms, it's as as much as 85%, but certainly well above 50 in all the studies that have looked at this. And brain fog's not an umbrella. It's really a disorder of executive functioning. And these are the mental abilities that include focusing attention, holding information in in your mind and blocking out distractions. And these are, it's kind of an induced ADD state. And these, these are so foundational that 
when they crumble, much of a person's ability to think collapses. Anything involving concentration, multitasking, planning, basically everything important, becomes so hard. These are unconscious processes for healthy people, but they require conscious thinking and conscious decision-making for people with this brain fog. And uh, one, one patient describes it as the oh yeah symptom, uh, syndrome, because I'm, I'm in the middle of saying something, I forget what I'm saying, I'll tail off and go, so, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, brain fog can affect, your, affect you so badly that you can get in your car and start to drive somewhere and then forget where you're going. And it's different from Alzheimer's because the memories are there, uh, but the retrieval of the information is is impaired. So, for example, when you think about your past or you think about your uh, your mom or your dad, the memories are very, very distant and hard to dredge up. It's like there's a barrier to bringing them forward. That's very different from Alzheimer's where those old memories actually are some of the last memories that people are able to access, really almost the inverse of it. We see this type of brain fog in many people living with HIV, chronic brain inflammation, uh, epileptics after seizures, basically brain cells going offline because they've been overstimulated and they have to rest, cancer patients receiving chemotherapy because the mitochondria in, in the nerve cells have taken a hit, and people with chronic illnesses like fibromyalgia and uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. And brain fog that of COVID is the brain fog of chronic fatigue syndrome. And it's extraordinarily disabling. So a few uh, years uh, earlier this year, a team of British researchers looked at the brain fog in the stark black and white imagery of MRI scans. They, uh, this was at the University of Oxford, and they were using the UK Biobank study, which regularly, among many other things, scans the brains of hundreds of volunteers. And they've been doing that for years prior to the pandemic, gathering data about brain aging, changes over time, changes after various illnesses. When some of the volunteers caught COVID, the team could compare their scans to the scans they'd had before. What they found was startling and quite a bit frightening, actually. They found even mild infections can shrink the brain visibly, not much, but visibly, and reduce the thickness of the gray matter. And they estimate that the changes they were seeing were comparable to about that that you would see in a decade of aging. And we don't think, according to most of the researchers, that this is the virus infecting the brain. It doesn't really do that very persistently or frequently. But inflammatory chemicals, remember those signals? They can travel from the lungs up the nerve endings, up the phrenic nerve to the brain where they disrupt the microglia. They disrupt autoregulation of the pro-inflammatory, essentially the white blood cell system, the immune system of the brain is the microglia, and they become activated. And this is exactly the brain fog effect, neuroinflammation. There's also a possibility of COVID causing autoimmune problems. We talked about 
activating dormant viruses like a dormant EBV, leading to the chronic fatigue aspect of, of long COVID, and maybe even EBV reactivating multiple sclerosis. Also, COVID can cause tiny little blood clots, and those can block the microcapillaries of the brain and actually cause brain damage through ischemia. So I want to talk about, in the last moment or two, some uh, functional medicine aspects of long COVID that I think are helpful and fall into the category of won't hurt, might help, what have you got to lose? And so the first one I want to mention is something called low-dose naltrexone. Naltrexone, low-dose naltrexone has been used in multiple sclerosis and with benefit to many patients. It is a very low dose of the cousin of naloxone. Naltrexone can be taken orally, however, naloxone cannot. Naltrexone is used at 50, that's 5-0 milligrams, uh, once or twice a day, as one of the drugs to maintain sobriety in people who are recovering alcoholics. And it has, you know, some small benefit in that. We're talking about using a dose that is less than a tenth of that FDA established as safe dose, safe for long-term use. And we're talking about using it to reduce the inflammation because at low doses, low-dose naltrexone actually modulates white blood cells, and turns down inflammation. That's established. Does it work in all cases of autoimmune disease? No. Does it work in enough cases to be worth a try? In my medical opinion and experience, yes. Unfortunately, this is not a drug you can have your doctor write a prescription for at you know, and go to the local chain pharmacy and get because they don't make it at low dose in pills. You can have it made up, and I encourage you to talk to your doctor about doing that. If you're having long COVID, I have used it in several people with exactly that syndrome, and it's been helpful. The other thing I want to talk about is your microbiome and your vitamin D levels. We know that vitamin D is beneficial in uh, the early stages of COVID. People with higher vitamin D levels get less sick. What you may not know is that vitamin D in the aftermath of any pro-inflammatory syndrome that gets stuck, vitamin D can be very, very helpful. It modulates the immune system in a beneficial way, and you can't really, you can take a dose like 5,000 units a day or 10,000 units a day for a month or two to test whether it's going to be of benefit to you. These are won't hurt, might help, worth a try suggestions if you're suffering from long COVID. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Bansky. Music by John Scoville.